uh, working through the Gospel of John, and we have been thrilled to learn new things about Jesus and learn new things about ourselves. As we've walked through the Gospel of John, we have really found that this book is giving us great answers, clear and practical answers to our everyday questions we have in our life. And the question I think that this passage addresses that we're going to jump into here in a moment is this question. What ruins our faith? What ruins our faith? Now, maybe as you think about that question, some answers kind of come to your to your mind. Maybe you think of yourself, okay, what ruins our faith? Meaning, well, what 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 stops us from trusting Jesus? What keeps us from putting our full faith in Jesus Christ? What what keeps us from really unpacking and, and, and trusting who Jesus is and all that he says that he is? What keeps us from faith? What ruins our faith? Well, maybe the things that come to your mind, kind of the first in, instinct stuff that come to your mind, maybe it's Maybe you think to yourself, well, maybe the idea that there's a lack of evidence, and that's what kind of ruins people's faith. Or, or maybe it's just the amount of suffering that we endure in this life. And those are really, really good critiques, really good criticisms. And I think the Bible addresses those things very, very well. But that's not what Jesus says in our passage. See, Jesus is going to answer this question. What ruins our faith? And I think the answer that Jesus gives might surprise you. In fact, I'm willing to bet that the answer that Jesus gives is not the answer that any of us thought of right off the top of our head. You see, how Jesus answers the question is this way. Jesus says, what ruins our faith is religion. Religion. Now that may sound really weird. Wait, what do you mean? How can religion ruin our faith. Isn't faith part of religion? How can one hurt the other? Well, this is what Jesus says, and again, I know this is surprising, but Jesus gives us this answer that religion can ruin our faith. In fact, that's the big idea for this morning, so I want you to write that down. If you're taking notes, I want you to write that one statement down, and hopefully it'll stick with you at least for a week. The big idea for this morning is this. Religion can ruin our faith. Religion can ruin our faith. Now, let me define this before we jump into our passage, just so you know kind of what I'm talking about. When, I, when I'm talking about religion, what I'm talking about very simply is just a, a system of spiritual beliefs and practices. A, a system of spiritual beliefs and practices. And when I say the word faith, especially in our passage today, what we're talking about is trusting in Jesus Christ, as the only means of forgiveness for our sins and a right standing with God. And our system of belief and practices can ruin our ability to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and have a right relationship with God. Let me show you how Jesus makes this point in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7. Now, I, I know kind of naturally sometimes what we think of is that really the enemy of belief is unbelief, right? It, it, maybe the problem is that we don't have enough belief. You see, but, but really what Jesus will show here is the problem for the group he's going to encounter is not that they don't have enough belief, rather it's that they have false belief. It's not that they, they don't hold on to some spiritual systems and have some spiritual thought. It's not that they're atheists, Rather, it's that they just have a set of false beliefs, a religious system that is ruining their opportunity to have faith in Jesus Christ. So let me show you how Jesus makes this point, and I think this is really going to be something that we can hold on to to help us in our journey towards Jesus. Whether you're just starting with Jesus or you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, I think this lesson can really help all of us. Let's see how Jesus teaches us in John chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 25. John chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man the one whom they seek to kill? Now we're kind of in the middle of a passage here, so let me get us kind of caught up, because right now we've been introduced to a new kind of character, a new group of people, and they're making this claim about Jesus 
that he is the one that people are seeking to kill. So here's what gets a little confusing in John chapter 7. In John chapter 7, there's really three groups. And sometimes when we read it, we see two groups instead of three groups. But there is three groups. Uh, The first group is this. There's the religious leaders, sometimes just called the Jews by John. The religious leaders are the ones who are really starting to oppose Jesus. They don't like his teaching. They don't like what he's saying. They don't like his growing popularity. They don't like where he's moving the crowds. They don't like this kind of um, activist that he is, right? This religious, spiritual activist who's kind of teaching these things that they feel are new and kind of unfounded and even blasphemous. And so they've been seeking to kill Jesus since John chapter 5. So just two chapters ago, they've been plotting against Jesus. They have to eliminate him. He is now a huge liability to their holding on of religious power in first century Palestine. So they don't like him. So we have the leaders. Then we have the crowd. The crowd is just, at this point, the people that have gathered for this Jewish festival. There's a religious festival. Jesus is in the middle of this festival. He is teaching at the center point of this festival, which is the temple. This is where Jesus is at right now. Very public place, and there are huge crowds. And the crowds that are talked about here, sometimes labeled as the people or the crowds, are the group of travelers who have come into Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Now, they don't know a ton about Jesus, and they don't know a ton about the leaders either, and they don't know about their plot. They're a little uh, naive to the kind of opposition that Jesus is facing with these leaders. They, they're, they don't, they're unaware that Jesus is kind of a target of theirs. They're unaware that these leaders want to kill Jesus. Now there's a third group, and that's the guys we're introduced to right here. It says the people of Jerusalem. Now these guys kind of stand in the center of the three groups I've already said. There's the leaders, and then there's the crowd, the travelers who've come in to celebrate this feast. But then there's a group of people, a crowd if you will, but these people are different than just the crowd. They're the people of Jerusalem, meaning they live in Jerusalem. They're associated with Jerusalem. And they're not like the crowd because they're pretty close to the Jewish leaders. They know of their plan. They know of their plot. They're not a part of it, but they're not naive like the other group. Look at what they say. They say, Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill, verse 26, and here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. You see what they're saying? They're they're kind of perplexed here. They're confused. Wait a second. This Jesus who's talking here, this is that teacher that we've been hearing about, and we know the religious leaders, they don't like him. So why are they letting him speak publicly? If they want to kill him, they better do it now because now he's influencing this large crowd who is coming. Now, this is the group that Jesus is going to interact with the most, these people of Jerusalem, not the leaders, not the crowd, but right here we're focusing on these Jewish people, the people of Jerusalem specifically. Look at what they say. This is the end of verse, or halfway through verse 26. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he's the Christ? Now we're starting to get a little bit of their perspective. This group right here, the people of Jerusalem, are the ones who are going to have a religion that will ruin their faith in Jesus. And we're getting a little glimpse of their religious perspective. Right now they have this kind of conspiracy theory. They think, wait a second, the leaders aren't killing him. But we know they want to. And he's a danger to this crowd over here. They're going to be susceptible to his teaching. They're going to be naive, and Jesus may convince them. Why are they not eliminating him? And then they think, wait a second. Well, maybe these leaders actually think he's the Christ. If you're not familiar with that title, what that means is it's the Old Testament hero. So the Old Testament is all the stuff written before Jesus. And in those documents, in those books that make up the majority of the Bible, In those books, it speaks of a hero, a hero that would come and deliver God's people and continue God's plan of redemption of the world. So they're waiting for this hero. And these people think, well, maybe the leaders are actually convinced. Maybe they realize that they're wrong. 
They wanted to kill him, but now they realize he is the hero. Now there's a sense of independence that these guys are going to show us here. Because they're not really dependent upon their Jewish leaders. They're going to say, wait, wait, wait. This cannot be true. And they're going to put Jesus to the test and we're going to get a hint of their religion. Look at their expectation. Their religious belief, if you will. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, this hero, no one will know where he comes from. What are they saying here? No, 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 no. We know of Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. We know about him. He has this kind of ministry that's gaining some notoriety. It's gaining some popularity. We know this guy. And we know that when the Christ comes, the hero we're waiting for, we won't know where he comes from. So clearly, this can't be the Christ. This can't be the hero that we're waiting for. So the religious teachers, if they believe that, which would explain why they're not seeking to kill him, well, we don't believe that because we know that the Christ will not be a person who we understand his origin. We don't know where he comes from, and we know where Jesus comes from. See, they have a criteria, a checklist, if you will. And they say that the Messiah, they're not going to know where he comes from. Well, they know where Jesus comes from, so clearly you can't check that box. So this is not the Christ. What has happened here? We get a hint here at their system of belief, right? Their religion. Now, again, I don't want you to think that religion is bad. I'm not saying that. Remember, the big idea is religion can ruin faith. That word can is very important. Religion can ruin faith. Your, your system of belief and practices can actually increase your faith, can, can foster great faith and healthy faith, but it can also ruin it. And that's what we're seeing here. They cannot see Jesus for who he really is. They cannot place their faith in Jesus Christ. And what's stopping them? It's not atheism, right? It's not a lack of belief. It's wrong belief. It's false belief. It is a religious belief that is keeping them from Jesus. Now, we got to dive down a little bit here and ask ourselves, what do they actually mean by this? Let's read the verse again. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, what are they saying here? Are they saying that, well, we're not going to know where the Christ is born, and we're not going to know his family tree? Well, they can't be saying that. They can't be saying that. Because if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there are many prophecies in the Old Testament that speak about the family tree of the Messiah, the family tree of the Christ, the family tree of this hero, and they speak about the birthplace of the Christ. We see this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, when Herod asked the scribes and Pharisees, he asked them, or the scribes and priests, he asked them, hey, where is the Christ going to be born? It says in verse 5, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For the prophet, or so so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people, Israel. Right there, immediately. We know this in the birth story of Jesus Christ, where we're getting closer to Christmas. So something very familiar to us, if you've been a follower of Christ for a while, you know this story. We knew where Jesus was going to be born. They knew where the Messiah would come. They knew it would be in Bethlehem. So how on earth can these guys say, no, 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 we won't know where the Christ is from, when clearly the prophecies that they hold to tells them exactly where Jesus is going to be born. And it gives us more than that. It tells us not only where he's going to be born, but whose family tree he's in. We know later, right, from other passages, and even in this very chapter, If you look at verse 42 of John chapter 7, we see the crowd has very common knowledge, not only of Bethlehem, but they know that he'll be born in the offspring of David. Look at verse 42 of John chapter 7. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring 
of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So how is it that they can maintain this belief that they won't know where the Christ comes from when their scriptures that they hold to tells them the birthplace and tells them the family tree? What are they talking about? Well, we actually know what they're saying is not about family trees and not about uh, birthplaces, right? It's not about the street address of Jesus, right? The hospital that he was born in, right? What they put as the location on the birth certificate. It's not about that. See, there was this common kind of belief in the first century world or, or, or close to that time that the Messiah would be hidden. It, it wouldn't be that they wouldn't know his birthplace or that they wouldn't know his family tree, but that he would be hidden. And what's, what's meant by that is this. It, it, was, it was like when Jesus comes, when the hero comes, or when the, sorry, the Christ comes, it's going to be demonstrative. It's going to be big. I mean, it's going to be like a, a parade. It's just going to just be outlandish, if you will. It's going to be this great revelation. It's going to be this spectacle of spiritual power. It's just going to be grand. It's not going to be a slow and subtle kind of process. It's not going to be like a, a slow campaign cycle or something. No, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be right away. We know some of the writings of the time do reflect this kind of a religious expectation. But it's not really found in the Old Testament. This idea of a, 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 a hidden Messiah and then a sudden reveal. Right? This demonstrative kind of declaration of this hero. We know later, Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, one of the early leaders of the Christian church, he writes to a Jewish uh, opponent, and he's trying to convince him about Jesus. And the uh, Jewish kind of opponent says, yeah, this is why Jesus can't be the Messiah, because the Messiah was supposed to be hidden. In fact, so hidden, the Messiah himself didn't know he was the Messiah. The Messiah would just grow up, and then all of a sudden, a prophet figure would come, would anoint him, and then the Messiah all of a sudden would realize, hey, I'm the hero, I'm the Christ. And then he would display his power, and then everybody else would come to kind of that epiphany moment. That's the expectation right here that these people of Jerusalem are reflecting. They're saying, Jesus, this, this can't be the hero here. You, you can't be the Messiah, Jesus, because you've been slowly kind of gaining notoriety. And we know you're from Nazareth, and we know of your itinerant ministry. So you're not surprising. You're not shocking. You haven't been hidden and then all of a sudden revealed. No, your popularity has taken time to grow. So clearly, you can't be the Messiah. Now, now what's going on here? Is it that they're just have kind of a, a misinformation here? Because this belief of a kind of a sudden reveal of the Messiah is nowhere found in the Old Testament. We do find it in kind of folk religion or kind of um, uh, religious kind of uh, speculation of the time. But we don't find it in the Old Testament documents. So they believe in this, but is it just a problem of misinformation? Like, Maybe they're just listening, listening to the wrong teachers, right? Maybe they just they got caught up in the fake news about the Messiah and they forgot to fact check it with the Old Testament, so they just got lost here. Now, from our perspective, I think it's fair to kind of give them that nice assumption, to give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, we can't judge their heart. We don't, we don't know their motives. Maybe they're just mistaken. But see, Jesus can see deeper than we can. And here's what Jesus sees. He sees that they're holding on to this system of belief. Right? Their religion is ruining their vision of him. They can't see him. They can't come to him. They can't have faith in him. But Jesus is going to unpack for them how there's something deeper than just misinformation. Listening to the wrong teacher. Following the fake news of the day. Jesus is going to show them that their religious pursuit is actually hollow. It is empty. In fact, their religion shows that they do not have a relationship with God. Their religion 
has ruined their faith. Look at how Jesus diagnoses something much deeper than just misinformation. Their religion has ruined their faith. It's ruined their relationship with God. Look at verse 28. It says, Jesus proclaimed. Now, this word right here is actually a very, very strong word. We could, we could fairly translate it, and we do in other parts of John's gospel. This word is actually cry out. It means sh- shout, a- a borderline scream. It's very uh, emotive. It's very emotional. Jesus has responded to their kind of position, and he is making a very strong announcement. He is basically saying, no more discussion, no more dialogue. It's time for you to listen. That's how strong Jesus is being here. I I feel personally that that the word choice proclaimed is not strong enough. I think something like cried out would probably fit better here, that word. So Jesus proclaimed or cried out as he taught them in the temple. Look what Jesus says. You know me. You know where I come from. What is Jesus acknowledging? Yeah, I know you know me. I know you know where I come from. I know you know I'm of Nazareth. I, I know you know of my itinerant ministry. I know you know that. I have no problem with that. Jesus is at no point of contention here. Why? Because he doesn't hold to their false belief that the Messiah, the, the Christ, would be hidden. He doesn't hold on to that kind of fake news. He doesn't hold on to that false belief. He doesn't hold on to that kind of expectation. So he just openly acknowledges their point. No, I know you know me. I get that. There's no problem there. You should know me. You should know where I come from. But then look at Jesus dive deeper. You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Listen to that. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. What did Jesus point out here? He says, you guys look religious. Oh, you look like you have the the sophisticated, modern kind of belief system. Right? You're cutting edge when it comes to the new and the novel religious belief. Right? You've taken not only the Old Testament scriptures, but now you've added upon them these other kind of speculative and, and, and maybe mystic understandings of what the Messiah would be. And you look like the religious elite. You're so sophisticated, you've claimed somewhat independence in your religious thinking from the religious teachers of the day. You don't need them to assist you in your evaluation of the Messiah. Oh, you've got it. You've arrived, right? You're you're the spiritual aristocracy. That's what you are. You're the elite of the elite. And Jesus says, you're hollow. Your religion is a facade. You don't have a relationship with God. You can't see me And you don't even know him. You don't know God the Father. The one you claim to be experts on. Your religion has ruined your faith in me. And it shows you have no relationship with God. Wow. Jesus' diagnosis there is severe. You you can feel that. The Apostle Paul makes a similar critique. Not of these same people, right? But, but people like them. People in the Jewish world who were very religious, but their religion ruined their faith. Let me show you this because I, I, I think it's very important to see that this was a, a common struggle of the people of Israel, especially during Jesus' time on earth. This is Romans chapter 9. I'm going to start with verse 30. I'm going to read all the way to chapter 10 verse 3 or verse 4. I want to show you kind of the the same language, the same feel that Jesus gave of this group of people whose religion had ruined their faith, had shown that they had no relationship with God. It was a hollow religion. Look at how Paul makes the same exact kind of diagnosis of some Jewish brothers of his who he would hope would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he shows them, guys, you can't see Jesus. Why? Because you're running a religion that is not of God. Before I read the passage, let me just set it up for you. What Paul's going to do is this. He's going to show that being right with God, being righteous or having a right standing with God, there are basically two attempts at this. One works and the other doesn't. 
Some people attempt to be right with God, to have a right standing with God by works. Essentially meaning doing good makes me right. I have a right standing with God if I do good things, if I do right things. And there's another way, an attempt to be righteous with God. It's not a way of works, but it's a way of faith. Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Placing faith in the righteous one then makes you righteous. So you see these kind of competing kind of ways to be religious. Either I pursue religious works and good deeds and that will make me right with God, or I pursue a religion of faith, placing faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, and that makes me right with God. And Paul will say this, both are running, both are moving, but only one found true righteousness. The other found a ruined religion. Look at this. Look at these com competing kind of pursuits toward God. Verse 30. What shall we say then? Oh, this is of Romans 9. The Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued the law that would lead it to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him, speaking of Jesus, will not be put to shame. He goes back to the contrast of faith versus works. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that, they're, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Do you see this? He's talking about those who would seek to, to, to get and gain righteousness by works are trying to establish a righteousness of their own. There's a sense of self-achievement, self-pride. I own my right standing with God because I've done good works and Paul says they miss the righteousness of God. It's only those who pursue it in faith. And he says, look, even the non-Jewish, right, the Gentiles have found this out. The ones that do even have the law, they have found righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice a very interesting phrase he uses. I think this cannot be lost in us. Look at verse 2. For I bear witness about them that they have a zeal for God. Look at how ironic this is. They have a zeal for God. What is he saying? They're religious. Right? Their problem isn't atheism. Their problem isn't a lack of belief. They're running after God. They are being religious. They are pursuing religious things. And what's happening? That religion is ruining their opportunity to gain righteousness because they're running after God in a way of works. I will earn my right standing with him. They believe in God. They pursue God. And their religion is killing their opportunity to be righteous because they do not see that righteousness comes by faith. Let's go back to John chapter 7. This is what's happening to this group. This is what Jesus sees. Their religion has ruined their faith. Now, it's not all bad news. There are some in this, or earshot of Jesus here, some that make up of uh, the crowd, that third group I told you about, the people, they're going to respond positively to Jesus. Uh, look at the reaction. One gets a little worse and the other gets a little better. Verse 30. So they were seeking all the more to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Who's the they were seeking to arrest him? This is now the people of Jerusalem, that second group, have now aligned themselves with the leaders of Jerusalem, or with the religious leaders. They've now aligned themselves. They have a plot to kill Jesus. Now these people of Jerusalem are saying, yeah, we don't like this guy either. 
So let's align ourselves and let's, let's work together to get, to get rid of this guy. We don't like Jesus. We don't like what he's saying about us. We don't like how he's kind of dismantling and deconstructing our religious systems. He's trying to ruin our religion. When Jesus is trying to show them that their religion is ruining them. But again, like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't end just on a negative note. Look at verse 31. Yet many of the people, again, there's a key phrase there, the people. These are not the people of Jerusalem. These are not the religious leaders. This is that crowd, the ones that don't know about the plot over here, that are kind of unaware of the dealings that are happening right now in the opposition toward Jesus. They're the travelers who have come from afar to celebrate this kind of religious festival that's happening here at the temple. It says, and they say this, they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, it sounds odd, and it may be hard to pick up. Wait, are these guys really believing? Well, look at verse 31, the first word there. Yet many of the people believed in him. Okay, what's being shown to us here? First, John is making a contrast. He just showed the group that said, no, we're going to hold on to our religious beliefs. We have this certain expectation about the Messiah that he'll be hidden. Jesus, you're not hidden. So we're definitely not wrong. So you are not the Messiah. So they're going to hold on to their religious belief and it's going to ruin their opportunity to have faith in Jesus Christ. Then John says, yet many of the people. He's setting up a contrast. Okay, these guys are over here, but let me tell you about this other group. Then John uses a word. Yet many of the people believe. Now there's sometimes that John uses the word belief and it doesn't mean true belief. Right? It could be half-hearted belief or, or even false belief. I don't think that's happening here. The first clue, I think, is that first word there. Yet, many of the people believe. So I think he's setting up a contrast. It's, it's, okay, it's black over here, it's white over here. Right? That's what he's trying to do. He's showing, look at this change. They don't believe, yet these guys believe. And then look at their question. Now, sadly, I think this is lost on us as um, English readers. In the Greek, the, this question is, is more read as a statement. Look at this question, because this may sound like unbelief, but actually it's a statement of belief. Look at the question. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, just right there, as we read it in English, you probably think, wait a second, that sounds like they're saying Jesus hasn't done enough signs, Right? When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? It sounds like there's doubt there. You see, what is actually being portrayed here is, again, in the Greek, the Greek will tip uh, the hand a little bit, will show us the question is actually better understood as a statement. In the Greek, it allows us to see what does the author anticipate the answer to be. So in Greek, you can do this. You can actually show by using a, a, a certain uh, word or a certain particle or a, a certain piece of, gr of grammar, you can use a, a certain piece to show that the question anticipates a negative or anticipates a positive. So in here, the question anticipates a negative. We could read it as, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? No. You can also read it as a statement. When the Christ appears... He will not do more signs than this man has done. What they're saying is, wait a second, Jesus has done enough. Because it's not like the Christ is going to do more than this man has done. No, he will not do more than this man has done. He has done enough. We find enough evidence in the miraculous work he's already done to believe in him. So they believe, right? They're willing to kind of let go of this common... Um, religious expectation, this common religious belief, they're saying, I'm sorry. Uh, these people of Jerusalem, we can't share your belief. We're willing to let that go. We're willing to let go of that belief because Jesus clearly has shown the evidence that he is everything he said he is. And so we're going to trust in him and we're going to let go of that belief. Religion can ruin our faith. Our systems of beliefs and practices can really ruin our faith. Again, I think it's very common for us to think that the true enemy of belief is unbelief. 
right? Or, or no amount of belief, uh, atheism, if you will. And there's a sense in which that is true, but it's also true that a great enemy, and what Jesus sees here as a great enemy, what Paul saw as a great enemy, is that an enemy of belief is actually false belief. An enemy of true and pure religion is false religion. Not non-religion or unreligion, right? Or a religion. But false religion. Let me give you something just kind of very, very practical. Because I think as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I think there are many times that our uh, religious systems, our set of spiritual beliefs and practices can really weaken our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a very practical example of this. I, I see this principle most vividly in dealing with counseling. I remember a man, uh, a, a young man coming to my house, crying and just in, in deep agony. He was broken over some uh, uh, mistakes that he had made. He felt he had disappointed his parents. He had disappointed his friends. Uh, he had disappointed himself. He had disappointed God. He was deeply convicted that he just made a mess uh, uh, because of some bad, bad choices. And he came to my house crying and weeping and confessing and just kind of sharing his brokenness over what he had done. So he confessed kind of his sin, his wrongdoing, and, and, and we, you know, prayed to God and asked for forgiveness. But, but the night kind of went on, and he could not release himself from his shame. He kept saying these just kind of awful things about himself, and he kept kind of obsessing over the mess that he had made and what it meant for his future. And at one point, it just felt like it was really starting to move to a very unhealthy point. And so we read two passages of Scripture together. The first passage was in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. We read this together. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So I told them, you have grieved over your sin, and this has produced repentance. You've turned from it. Then we read 1 John, 1 John 1, 9, which says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all, or to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I said, you confessed your sin, so God has cleansed you of all your unrighteousness. And then I asked him this. I asked him, why are you crucifying yourself? when Christ has already been crucified for you. I think oftentimes how Christians handle shame shows the false spiritual beliefs and practices that they have adopted. Just like this young man who was weeping and broken before me. He knew the severity of his sin. He understood that it was wrong. His sorrow led him to repentance, to call it out, to want to turn away from it. He confessed it to God, but he wouldn't let God clean him up. He felt like he had to crucify himself again. He felt that, that, that he had to make amends for the wrong that he'd done. He had to, you know, beat up his self-esteem. He had to speak of his lack of worth. He had to almost brutalize himself in order to make up for it. As if his kind of uh, uh, assault on his esteem was some sort of sacrifice that would appease God. Like the more evil he kind of uh, uh, spoke that he had, he had done, the, the more worthless he kind of uh, paraded himself to be, that God would be pleased and finally forgive him. But God was not looking for him to sacrifice his self-esteem, to sacrifice his self-worth. He wasn't looking for him to verbally abuse himself as some sort of sacrifice. 
God the Father already looked at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his son, which was much more satisfying. So there was no need to wear shame. Why? Because the cross of Jesus Christ had already done its work. Either his sins were forgiven and cleansed or they weren't. There's nothing this young man could have done to make himself more forgiven. There's nothing he could have done to show God that that his spiritual posture of of humility was a sacrifice that that would please God and win him some reward of granting him more merits of forgiveness. No, Christ had won all the forgiveness he could ever need. He just had to acknowledge that, confess it, and let the work of Christ do its work. He didn't need to crucify himself. Why? Because Christ had already been crucified for him. He didn't need to pay for his sin in agony because Christ paid for his sin with the agony he experienced on the cross. This young man didn't need to shoulder the wrath of God. Christ had shouldered the wrath of God already for him. See, I think our religious systems and our religious beliefs and practices again can be couched in religious language, language that feels biblical, right? But internally is not a biblical idea. So I want to encourage you, if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to pray a prayer and ask God to point out if you are holding on to any shame. Shame you just can't let go of for some reason. Maybe it's a false sense of humility. Uh, Maybe it's a, a pious form of pride that you think if you feel bad about yourself that will make you more spiritual. I don't know. Maybe it's just you can't get over the degree of the sin and you feel like it's just too high-handed. You feel like it's just it's just too egregious to ever be forgotten. You must bear your scarlet letter the rest of your life. I, I don't know what it is. But I want to challenge you to 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 pray a prayer maybe maybe similar to this. You could just say you could say to God, you could say, Father, I I, I know that the work of Christ has handled all my sin and therefore has taken away all my shame. Father, will you point out any shame that I still wear? Any shame that I still hold on to? And would you help me see that the work of Christ on the cross has removed all of that shame? Help me live forgiven and not under the weight of regret. I think if you pray a prayer like that, maybe several times this week, I think you are going to feel so different spiritually. I think you're going to find a, a, a confidence in your spirituality. And I think you're going to get a, a deeper appreciation for the work of Jesus Christ and how complete that work is. Pray that prayer. Find out if in your heart you're holding on to shame or past sin. If that's holding you back to everything that God wants you to experience spiritually. Have him point it out to you. And ask God to remove your grip on that shame. Now maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. What's something that you can take from this passage? I I want to encourage you to make sure that you're aware of what is the first step in following Jesus. See, often we think about following Jesus and we think about, well, following Jesus means following the rules of Jesus and following the teachings of Jesus. And that's partially true. But we don't want to think the first step in following Jesus is just doing a bunch of work, a bunch of good deeds, a bunch of religious practices. It's true that Jesus has a a plan for your finances, a plan for your marriage, a a plan for your friendships, a a, a plan for your friends, right? And and all those different things. That God has a plan for all those. Jesus has a plan for all those. And if you follow his teaching on those things, that you will see those things flourish. That's true. You see, but Jesus' goal is not to make you religious. Jesus' goal is to have a relationship with you. To be restored to you. 
And the first step to having that spiritual restoration is not works. No, now you're running at it in a wrong way. The first step of following Jesus is the step of faith, not works, not good deeds. It's faith. Faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for a right standing with God. Placing faith in Him. This is how you receive righteousness. See, this is what makes Christianity so different than any other religion. Now, I know you may be thinking, wow, you're just going to summarize all the religions of the world very simply like that. And I don't, I'm not aware of every religion, but I think it's actually very fair to summarize at least the ones that I know of to speak very generally like that. I know they have they're all different things, but most of them, I, I could feel like I could say that, and I want to say all of them, except for Christianity, are really, if you break them down, systems of work for right standing, work for righteousness. Do these deeds, right? The noble path of Buddha or whatever it is, right? The doing these certain things will get you to a right standing with God. Christianity's not like that. It doesn't mean it doesn't have works. It means that the first start is faith, and then faith will show itself in work. Let me give you an illustration just to point it out to you. Christianity is like this. Every religion, again, I know I'm speaking very generally here, but I think it's true. Every religion is kind of like this. It's kind of like you're standing on the stage of life and you perform. You perform uh, Maybe a, a dance, if you will, or something like that. You, you, you perform, you play the violin, right? You, you do some sort of performance, and at the end of the performance, after you're done, then God stands up and applauds. Says, good job, you're right. You have a right standing with me. You performed well, therefore you receive an applause. That's not Christianity. Now, Christianity has a performance. There are deeds that Christians do. This is why if you're not yet familiar with the full kind of teaching of the scriptures. When you look at your friend's Christianity, what do you see? Well, you see his performance of it, right? You see his kind of religious beliefs and practices. You see him pray, read his Bible. You see her go to church and go to small group. You see all these things, right? So there is a performance that's being happened. See, the difference is, when does the applause happen? I think in every other religion, the applause happens at the end. Not in Christianity. See, before you ever get on the stage, as you're eager to show off, as you peek kind of to the curtain and you look out to see who's watching, before you ever get on that stage and ever start whatever your performance is, whether it's musical or dance or whatever it is, right? God stands up before you ever get on the stage and he applauds. What is he saying? You're right. The moment you play faith in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is the only means of forgiveness. God calls you righteous. He says, you belong. You are my son. You are my daughter. You have a right standing with me. And then he sits down and says, now perform. Now do what you are going to do. He doesn't wait to the end to be appeased. He sees your faith in Jesus Christ as what he finds appeasing, what he gives approval to it's your faith in Christ. And then he applauds. And then you perform. You're not working for the grade. The grade's already been given. You're not working for approval. Approval is already being forgiven. You're not waiting for a pronouncement. The pronouncement has already been given. You're not waiting for the declaration, for the gavel to hit, for the evidence to be presented, and for the judge to say not guilty. No, that's already happened. That's already happened. That's already done. You are approved. You belong. You are accepted. You are called right with God upon faith. And then you start to see the work performed. Remember what your first step in Christianity is. Your first step toward Jesus is one of faith. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to pray a prayer right now in a moment. And my hope for you is you would take that first step towards Jesus. Not the step that says, I'm going to do a bunch of work, but it's a step that says, I'm going to trust in the work of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of my sin and for a right standing with God. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Well, Father, we pray that you'd keep us from false beliefs and practices that can weaken our faith. Father, that you'd give us not a false religion, an unhealthy religion, an unhealthy system of things that would weaken our faith in you. Father, make us strong. Strong in our understanding of what your word has taught us. I pray for all the followers of Jesus Christ who are going to pray, Father, to you and ask you to find the shame that they hold on to. Father, I pray that that exercise, that prayer, will be so fruitful in their life. They would see it's not a healthy practice to hold on to shame. It's not a healthy belief to think that we need to wound ourselves to get your favor, to hurt ourselves in a sense, to sacrifice ourselves in a sense. But rather, it's to hold on to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what gives us our forgiveness and right standing. I pray, Father, that maybe if they have sin in their life, that they would confess it and see that you cleanse them from that. You take it all away, and there's no reason to hold on to it anymore. Father, for those that don't yet know you, who want to call themselves followers of Jesus Christ, and I pray if you're listening, and that's you, and you want to step toward Jesus today, that you can see very clearly now that it's a step of faith is the one that you need to take first. Before you do any work, before you ever perform Christian things, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to make a statement of trust that you believe the only way to be right with God, the only way to have your sins forgiven, is to trust in the work of Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection. So if that's you, you can pray a very simple prayer like this. You can just pray it to God. It's got to come from your own heart. You can say something like this. You can say, Father, I see. I see that I need your forgiveness. I know I need this forgiveness because I've sinned. I've broken your laws. I've broken your rules. I've done it many times. And I see that you've provided that forgiveness for me. It wasn't a forgiveness I needed to earn, but you provided it for me. You gave it to me as a gift. You gave it to me in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And I see that I must accept this gift by faith. So today, I say that I believe in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And I make him the Lord of my life. And I commit my life to performing the works that he would have me to do. But today, I put my faith in him. And I say today, I'm starting to follow Jesus. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want you to know that we are extremely excited about that here at Valley Bible Church. And I want you to know that we want to start walking with you as you start to perform kind of Christian things, to do Christian things, to do Christian good works. We want to show you how to read the Bible. We want to show you how to have a prayer life. We want to show you how to share your newfound faith. So please, contact us. We are available to you. You can look us up on our website, which you already know because you're viewing this. And we would love for you to call us, and one of our pastors would love to walk you through what are the now first things that you need to do to put in place to have a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.